It's a really, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. This is my fourth year bringing sound folks to Savannah, and I'm really happy to have our two guests today, Will Files and Craig Hennigan, two really amazing, talented guys. And the goal of today is to show a little bit about, obviously, their process, their creative insight, and try to connect the dots of how you get from where you guys are now, here in college level, ready to go and attack the industry and get your foot in the door to where they are, which 15 plus years later, but to try to make some real connections so you guys can understand all of the work and love and labor that goes into doing some of these projects. So without further ado, uh, let's welcome Will Files and Craig Hennigan. Thank you, thank you. Um, so I'd love just to start off and get a little background so we can understand what I love to call the origin story. Everyone has their origin story. So just looking at, for you, Craig, with your background, it's an amazing roster of projects and um, a lot of credits. Can you tell us a little bit about where you started and where you are today, um, the best way possible? I'm from Toronto, from Toronto, Canada originally. And uh, I mean, from an audio perspective, I was just that, it's cliche to a degree, but I was that kid with the tape recorder. I was that kid that just, for some reason, sounds um, always spoke more to me than visuals on some levels. Um, I was really intrigued with soundscape type music. Um, the Beatles using crickets and insects in Abbey Road, um, the doors with the thunder and the rain at the beginning of Riders in the Storm, Pink Floyd's sort of mechanical stuff. And um, I didn't really know how that stuff sort of worked with image until I got to college. Um, I, went to a, I went to a college similar to this where it was very hands-on. I went to a Sheridan College Media Arts course. and. Um, if Will was making a film, I was the guy that would try to do a sound for him and stuff. And, and so I kind of hooked up with a lot of different wannabe directors or aspiring writers or whoever. And uh, myself and, and, and a friend of mine at the time, we basically had this utopian vision of we could do sound for these people's films. Not just the production sound, but we could do the sound effects and maybe we could write the music and maybe we could just do the whole package. And I didn't know anything outside of college that the reality of doing that is kind of pretty insane, you know? But in college, you can kind of do those sort of things because it's this sort of microcosm of like, you know, steal this piece of gear from this room and I'm gonna get this guy to do this and I'm gonna help this and, you know, and then you're out doing the boom op and then you're doing the sound recording and then you're doing the music, you're doing some Foley. Um, so all those sort of things I learned and I had some great teachers there that showed me sort of all those sort of things and then I figured out that, oh my God, all that soundscape stuff that I really loved on records is actually what we do for films. What Will and I do and what you guys do, you are creating these worlds. You're, you're creating soundscapes for, for image. Um, so when that all sort of connected to me, I was like, oh, that's really something that I kind of resonated with. And then I just spent all my time in studios and that's all I did. I just became that guy that lived in a studio and three or four o'clock in the morning, sleeping on the floor, getting up and doing, you know, um, that was he my still life. Does that. I still do that. And it hasn't really changed. Um, and then getting into the real world, um, I did some internships at, um, at the time it was called film house and now it's deluxe and colored by deluxe and deluxe labs. Um, so I was, I became sort of loosely part of a company called sound dogs, which is kind of a collective co-op. Have you guys have heard of SoundDogs.com as a website for sound effects? Well, they're, they actually started in Canada in Toronto. Um, I'm kind of like third generation sound dog at the time, but 
it was a great resource to sort of be working there. Independent, completely freelance. I'm still freelancer to this day. Um, but at the time, Holly, like we were called Hollywood North. Canada was like getting labeled as Hollywood North and runaway productions and all this kind of stuff. And it was true. The place was like crazy. You would do, and being a smaller market, you would do um, television and then you do maybe a movie of the week and then maybe you do a film and you kind of bounce back and, and back and forth. So your skill sets, um, if you were, whatever you were sort of, um, if you were a dialogue editor or sound designer or mixer, you could do a lot of different projects and stuff. And that's sort of the, the smaller sort of market. And then I worked for free for like two and a half, three years, you know, did my dues trying to do short films and independent films and just trying to figure all that sort of stuff out. And it's like you invite 50 people to your house, to, your, to a party, and maybe 25 will show up. And then maybe out of those 25, you might meet one or two that actually... I was just very fortunate that some of those, if I did 50 short films that year, one or two of those guys would go on and do something and I would stay in touch with them. And that's, I was very fortunate that way. Um, and then they would continue to do films and hopefully they got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how the gist of the, the original sort of side of my, my sort of work life sort of came about. Nice. Mr. Will, amazing journey that you've had. I originally met you when you were at Skywalker Sound and now you're in LA, but how did you end up at Skywalker Sound? What was your coming of age story? <laughs> well, I actually grew up not far from here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I don't know if anybody knows that place. Um, <laughs> the Redneck Riviera. So uh, I grew up there and same as Craig, you know, we grew up making our own little crappy movies on VHS camcorders and um, I my father was an engineer at a local radio station, so I grew up around sound and sound production, and I first found uh, they had sound effects in the radio production lab uh, on 12-inch LP vinyl, <laughs> which I just thought was the coolest thing. Like, wow, someone is recording and cataloging sound effects, and that was like a thing went off in my head, like, oh, this is like, you know, this is something that you can collect is a sound effect recording. Um, and so I would start using those sound effects to put into my crappy little movies, um, not ever really thinking that that was something that I could do as a job. And, but I loved movies and I, I played in bands and I loved music. Um, so when I went to film school at the North Carolina School of the Arts, uh, it finally clicked for me that, that this was not only something that I loved doing, but like a viable job. Like I could get a job in Hollywood making movies and and making a living doing sound for movies. So sort of same as Craig, I kind of dove into it and was doing as much as I could for everybody's projects. And there was only really two or three of us there that were really into doing sound for film. So one of the professors uh, sort of, you know, who was a more sound centric uh, editing professor, he was taking a couple students to this sound conference in Iowa City, Iowa of all places. And there was a guy named Walter Murch and a guy named Randy Tom who were giving talks at this thing. And of course, being a young nerd, I was, you know, oh my God, I gotta meet these guys. And so I asked him if I could, if I could tag along and I borrowed a couple hundred bucks from my dad to buy a plane ticket and I flew out there. And, um, and I met these guys who were like my heroes and still are. Um, and ended up, we all stayed in the same little hotel and Iowa City's not that big, so we, always, we would all end up kind of eating breakfast together in the morning, and so I ended up having a bit of a rapport with these guys. Um, 
mostly just by asking interesting questions, you know, because I was so familiar with their work and I was so interested in their work. And um, I think that that was really the initial connection I made with, with Randy in particular. And so we stayed in touch with email uh, for the next couple of years. And then when I graduated from film school, he offered me an internship at Skywalker Sound, which is like winning the internship lottery. Um, and so, of course, you know, I dropped everything and moved out there. And then I, I moved to the Bay Area and I waited for like four months because he was over in London doing Harry Potter. And I was like, oh man, he's forgotten about me. This is, you know, it's over. I got a job at, you know, Kinko's Copies. And, you know, it's like trying to scrape by and trying to figure out what my next move would be. And then out of nowhere, on like a Saturday night at midnight, I got an email saying, hey, can you start on Monday? <laughs> so I did, and you know, I worked for free for a few months, and um, eventually you know, got in the union and worked my way up. And I was lucky to have a mentor like him because he really you know, showed me the ropes, and he gave me a lot of responsibilities, and gave me a lot of opportunities, and pushed me with some of his clients to do more and more work. So it was... Um, you know, kind of a dream scenario, but uh, I think it mostly started because I was I was interested in his work, and he could see that there was a spark of something there. Um, and then, so I worked about ten years at Skywalker, and moved down to L.A. and set up shop at Fox with Craig, and that's where we met, and um, instantly realized, you know, we kind of had a similar approach and similar methodology and, and similar tastes and that kind of thing. So it ended up being just this totally fortuitous thing that I ended up at this shop where a guy who, uh, you know, has very similar aesthetics as I do. Awesome. Um, so something that we want to do is we, um, both Craig and Will have pulled out a bunch of clips of different projects that really highlight um, some of the amazing work that they've been doing over the years. And uh, I think throughout We'll have kind of, con you guys can give some background and context, but I think just for you, Craig, for, uh, I remember when I first found out that I was watching Stranger Things, got to the end of the credits, I was like, oh, Craig did that. Amazing. But no, it was one of those kind of, no one knew about Stranger Things, and then everyone knew about Stranger Things, and then everyone wanted to, you know, tell their friends about Stranger Things, and now we're in season two. So for you, like, what was it like to have an opportunity to work on an unknown project like Stranger Things? and help design some of those sounds? Uh, it was great. Um, I got involved in this project through uh, a producer, um, director, friend of mine, and uh, he runs a company called 21 Laps, and they were expanding, and one of their projects that they were doing was Stranger Things, and uh, they were they called me because they were like, hey, we're, thinking, we're doing this series, and we, we need to sort of know about some TV mixers and some other people in town, so they're literally calling me about vetting other people do you know Will or do you know Michael or, or whatever? And I was like, yeah, I know that guy. He's pretty cool and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the conversation, like, would you be available maybe to come in and meet with the brothers? And, and um, we know you don't do TV. And I was like, well, big thing on perception of what sound designers do and stuff. But um, they were not wrong. I hadn't done any television since I'd left Canada. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested, right? So um, I read the scripts, went in and met the brothers. Um, and then on, I just went home and a couple weeks later, I just started making some ideas and sounds. Um, and then by this time they were shooting the first couple episodes and I just send them MP3s of the idea of what the, have you guys, as you guys have watched, anybody's watched the series? So you know what the Demogorgon is? So. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so some of the first things I designed was the sound of the Demogorgon. Um, 
the whole idea of the lights and the whole idea of the sort of aesthetic of spooky tones and drones and stuff. And I just did all that stuff on MP3s and sent them down. And then I'd get like emails at like two or three o'clock in the morning, like, dude, we just, we're like, we're just wrapped up our day of shooting and we're like sitting in this sort of darkened room having a beer. And so we put on your MP3 of the Demogorgon and it's like, fuck, it's like, you know, <laughs> freaking people out. So anyways, I knew I was on sort of the right track of, of like what these guys were sort of about. That was very organically, very naturally happened that way. And, uh, and my deal on that show is I'm, I'm sort of sidebar to the sound crew that actually does all the dialogue editing and the Foley work and what you would say, the regular sound effects and, and then the mixing. Um, my deal is, is um, the term sound designer is kind of this nebulous term and kind of can mean a lot of different things. Um, but for me on that movie, it's like I get to do all the cool stuff basically. Um, and uh, so I, I'm usually on the shows like six to eight months before anybody else. I'm working on early, early visual effects, early, early ideas. Um, like this season two that just came out, I was actually working on it last January on, on early things for that sh series. Um, and the great thing is just, it's just, it's, it's sound designing only, like pure, just like working on creative stuff. Whereas Will and I nowadays, we tend to supervise we're also mixers, and then we also are the sort of main sound designers. So we're sort of gluttons for, for punishment or control freaks, whichever which way you want to sort of <laughs> take it. It's generally control freaky. Like you just, every, you want, for a director or whoever you're working with, you want, you, you want to be responsible for that guy. You don't want to go to a mix stage and you don't know all the sounds, you don't know who the hell's cut what. You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want, you want to know that stuff has been cultivated and, and worked on and cared for and all those sort of things to make it the best it can be. The only way you can really do that, especially in our workflows, is to be able to sort of sort of try to mix and supervise and design. Now people say maybe you're you know master of none. Um, well you're not just doing it all on your own. You have a, you generally have three or four sound designers with you that are like you know arm in arm with you all the way through. Um, so but this show it's me and for the sound design side of it. And then Brad and his crew, they do a lot of great stuff, but all the fun stuff is usually what I get to do. So this first clip you pulled out is yeah. the opening, yeah. which is the yeah. first sequence you worked yeah. on? Yeah, I okay. couldn't bring any season two, sorry. So this is like last seasons. Um, and this was this opening sequence they sent to me months before the episode was even completed. Um, but I just, again, I just took a swing at it. And uh, we didn't have any real conversations of what, aesthetically they were looking for. I kind of knew from talking to them, it's obvious that they live and breathe 80s references, but they never say to you, I want it to sound like Alien, or I want it to sound like, you know, the thing or something. They're not those kind of guys, and most directors not. They have touchstones of stuff that they think is interesting, um, but they don't want to come off as, you know, something that's a complete ripoff of, of that. They, they love that stuff so much that it's actually become fabric of, of what they're doing so sonically the idea was how to make that fabric feel part of this world but not um not a complete ripoff of of alien <laughs> or the thing or or, or or whatever none of those discussions ever happened the same with the music people think oh they you know they just told them to write john carpenter asked that's not it at all and survive as a band they're not that's not their trip they truly are those guys they write that kind of stuff you know um 
and I think that's fortuitous for like when you're creating something is like to sort of understand what your directors or your producers or whoever you're working with or what they're trying to get across from storytelling and um, try to make sounds that sort of best serve that. Um, and then sometimes you cut something like this that comes yeah, along and you can yeah. you know do some cool stuff with it. Cool, let's, let's take a look. That was so that that basically set up the whole tone yeah. for for the show, and, and it's something that Will and I talk about a lot when we're working on projects is is um, finding finding the sonic language, you know, um, or the the sonic world, and and for that one, that basically there's sounds in that little series there that actually I still use to this day because they've set up all these different sort of moments that. I didn't know at the time we we're going to sort of grow into other things, but um, they did. And so you're able to sort of reference these things that people are familiar with, but sort of push them into new sequences and stuff. So, yeah. Nice. And um, so this next short clip is with uh, one of Ryder's character, the mom who's with the daughter, and there's mm. the Christmas lights that are activating. Talked about like the detail and the so the Christmas yeah the lights it. became a really uh, a lot of people seem to like the lights and and the trip this what you're gonna hear now is actually not the mix this is what I sent to the mixer so it's really just my um, it's basically my Pro Tool session that I've just crashed down to a stereo for you guys um, and it's super dry there's no foley there's no backgrounds there's no dialogue I don't think it's just what you're hearing um, the light bulb idea. It was just something that the brothers sort of like touched on in, in the first couple episodes, that one light bulb in the, in the barn um, for when Will disappears. Um, I knew when they liked that kind of stuff that I could push the envelope, so to speak, and make sounds for stuff that essentially in real life doesn't, they don't really, I mean, yeah, lights do make a little bit of a, you know, sound, but they're not amplified. So I took it as, as an opportunity to make something that kind of grew into this rhythmical, um, idea for these lights and a bit of the touchstones again sort of looking for references is like close encounters with what they did in that movie um, I didn't do it in a musical sense I tried to do it in taking sound effects and making them into a rhythmical or musical type deal um, and I recorded a bunch of different light bulbs I recorded a really cool old battery charger that I have that sort of buzzes and futzes and then I do long loop recordings of that and take that material and cut it up and manipulate it in certain ways um, I'm a really big fan of trying to take um, as few sounds as possible 
or like a little family of sounds and make that into what I want it to sound like. Um, because I think it, be, it becomes, instead of throwing the kitchen sink at something, you kind of like, you're focusing on, on you know, three or four sounds that actually fit the moment. And then f you manipulate those by stretching or pitching or taking the beginning and ends of ones and taking the middle out and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and something like, that's what these sort of are able to do because it has a familiar sort of cyclical sort of thing to it. But um, very simple sounds, but people seem to really, last year I got a lot of questions on the lights and stuff, but it's, it's funny because it's we work on stuff that's, oh, you designed this crazy thing and you've done all this stuff and it's 100,000 tracks and it's, you know, and then it gets to this and you're like, oh, those lights. And I'm like, what? That was like, that was just a couple of recordings and, and, but, you know, that's how it goes, right? Your experience, you know. Let's take a listen. Very simple, very, thank you. Very simple sounds, but yeah. taken in a, in a sort of rhythmical context and, and uh, yeah. I think one thing that's really interesting, just thinking, hearing that stuff in isolation, you know, so much of sound design is, is actually about rhythm. And being a slave to the visual there is not the right choice, right? right? You're kind of, I mean, it's close enough it's to loose. believe it, yeah. but it's more important that it, feels right right and so that was really interesting to hear it in isolation to think about that right for me because it's close enough but it's if you if you were perfectly in sync with every single it thing work. it wouldn't feel right right, right? so nice. sound rules um so this next clip is kind of the introduction of 11 superpowers spoiler alert she's has superpowers what <laughs> um but i think this is a great example too here in the isolated tracks, no production. Yeah, so I think this is 11. Um, this will sort of demonstrate, um, so I guess some of it's more musical oriented. Um, and, uh, you know, small, and when we're doing, I mean, I don't know, Will feels the same way, but, you know, in Hollywood films nowadays, it's, it's sometimes, especially if you don't have a good relationship with directors or, or how you're dealing with it, you can kind of get your hand slapped fairly heavily if you go into a musical direction. Um, and this show, these guys actually like me to sort of do that sort of stuff. So when you hear some stuff in, in the series that is maybe music, it's actually me or vice versa. Um, and this is a good example of, of where I broke out some of my synths and some more of my sampler type sort of ideas and, and kind of went for it. So cool. Here we go. Let's see, listen. Thank you. 
Nice job, Greg. Pretty cool, right? Sorry for the nipple. So. The, the, the high frequency stuff is pretty amazing. Yeah. Does that translate, do you feel, when, like, the, when it comes to TV mixing, when it comes to what, what you're doing in your studio to what TV That's a really doing? good question. I did, actually, I don't even really pay attention to that stuff anymore. Yeah. I just sort of look for sounds that I think are interesting. And, and um, I think that used to be a, a, you know, one of the rules you know, that you had to sort of be mindful of and um, you know, putting light buzzes and hums and stuff. And then you have a dialogue mixer that's trying to tune all that stuff out of the dialogue track. But then you have a sound design and it shows up with a bunch of buzzes and hums. <laughs> so you, I've had those conflicts with, with um, you know, dialogue guys or, or the other side of the team. Um, but I'm like, no, but the feel of what we're going for is that. So we're going to put these buzzes in. Um, the ear ringing and all sort of things. Yeah, so most of the time it gets, you know, I think the streaming, you know, I mean, I hear the streaming, you know, when I listen to it versus what we, how we mixed it and how it sounded in the theater, but that's always the case. You know, how we listen to it in the theater is never going to sound the same out in the real world. Um, but I feel like most of that stuff gets through, most of the frequency stuff. I don't really, I don't think I pay attention to it as much as there. Maybe I do subconsciously, but I don't really... I don't really chase sounds that I feel are going to work. I just look for it as an overall sort of feel. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so for you, Will, for both of you guys worked on Deadpool. I was say both of us. Yes. Yeah. But talk Greg to me. worked on it for longer than I did. <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk to me about when a project like Deadpool comes up uh, for a director that had you worked with Tim before? No, I, um, I met Tim. Um, first off, Fox, being based at Fox has, has a, is a great thing because we we get um, opportunities to sort of like hear about projects or get involved with projects. Um, it's a good resource for um, being attached to a studio is a, is a sort of a good resource to get work essentially. Um, and uh, this project had you know, sort of, you get these, you know, like going into too much detail or whatever, but studios are usually two or three years out in terms of what they're making. Um, so if you can kind of see what those films are going to be and you start putting the pieces together, like, oh, you know, Deadpool and I think this, and that's how that one happened. Um, I met Tim and he was the first time director. Um, even though he's an incredibly successful um, visual effects guy, he, he's the guy that created all the David Fincher opening title sequences to... Um, you know, Dragon Tattoo and, and all those sort of things. So um, incredibly successful and uh, met with him and then had a good meeting and then ended up getting the project. Um, they went off to Vancouver to shoot it. Uh, and then I basically, um, I probably did maybe eight or nine months on it, but I was sort of double booked when it was going to mix. So <laughs> Will came in here and saved the day for me. Um, and what Will mentioned earlier about equal skill sets and having somebody in your corner that's that way made it as stressful as it was to go to the director and say, look, I'm, uh, you know, I, I have to go do this other project. I don't want to leave, but I have to. Um, but Will is actually even better than I am. So you're going to be, you're going to be, you know, well taken care of, worked out. Um, and uh, so basically I did a lot of the early sound design. I did a lot of the early tent mixes and, and sort of overseeing the show, supervising the show. And then, and Will was able to come in and sort of uh, take the reins and, and basically do the final mix and, and all that kind of stuff. So. so Will, what can you say about this? This is the opening sequence of the film. There's yeah. a lot going on. There's a ton. <laughs> so yeah, the, that, that, the main thing with this scene is it's so much happening so fast and to try to, um, the mixing challenge in this was to try to enunciate the moments, if you will, like keep everything short and in and out and 
keep it punchy, and, and a lot of it was about syncing things up with the music. Um, and then, of course, you've got to protect all of the jokes, right? So it's like, it's this kick-ass action scene. It's, it's a mile a minute. There's tons of music. There's tons of effects. But then you've got to make sure that every joke is landing. Um, and this scene took forever to mix because, you know, things are panning constantly. Things are moving constantly. When we were trying to get it that, like, really tight, punchy sound where everything was very precise. And it makes him, it makes, the sound makes him feel more precise and makes him look like more of a badass. So uh, maybe let's just play it and we can talk a little Good. bit about it. Oh, hello. I know, right? Whose balls did I have to fondle to get my very own movie? I can't tell you, but it does rhyme with Pulverine. And let me tell you, he's got a nice pair of smooth criminals down under. Anyway, I got places to be, a face to fix, and oh, bad guys to kill. Maximum effort. How long did you guys spend on that, something like that? Well, I mean, you probably cut it for Yeah, that was probably one of the first, um, that was one of the first, that was in real one, so that was one of the first things that we did. Um, and uh, yeah, it's one of the big set pieces out of the gate, so you had to make it sound great. So um, we didn't have the, the final music wasn't around, so, but a lot of the sounds, a lot of that sort of template definitely, I think, stuck through all the mixes. Um, we do, Will and I tend to do a lot of early mixing. And uh, what ends up happening is um, there's two schools of thought with the tent mixing sort of idea. And, and one is, uh, oh, it's just a tent mix. That's just no big deal. But Will and I are actually of the fact, no, that's actually the most important mix ever 
because it's your first dress rehearsal of like how you're going to make something sound for a director or for the film. And if, why would you show up with like lackluster effort, you know? Um, and so that's, that's a great demonstration, you know, and, and, uh, and thankfully it didn't change that much sequence wise. They were pretty happy with the cut. Um, so we were able to cut sounds that worked. Um, and that's another big thing is actually working on films or shows that actually are well edited and well put together. Um, we've both been on movies that, you know, like, God, I know what I'm doing. I, I've done this before, but some reason it's not working. And then a lot of times when you dig deeper, it's really not the sounds you're putting on it. It's actually the fact that it's just not Yeah, the, the rhythm of the cut the rhythm is, is not working or they haven't left you any room or action movies, specifically action movies, this, not this movie, but we've worked on action movies that double and triple cut a punch. You know, like, so yeah, which which frame should I put it on? Which yeah. of the three punches do you want to hear the sound on? Because yeah. <laughs> you don't want to hear doosh, doosh, you know, because yeah. that sounds ridiculous. But they don't think about it till you put the sound in. They go, oh yeah, you're right. So you'd say in terms of your collaboration, not only with the director, but with the picture department also yeah. is very yeah. involved. I mean, it's case to case, but more than often than not, you guys have an open dialogue throughout most of the time, hopefully. I mean, that's the best thing about a tent mix is it's a chance to sit down with the director and and have him only think about the sound for a few hours. You know, because the you know making a movie like Deadpool or Planet of the Apes or Take Your Pick, the directors have so much on their minds and there's so much to attend to, and their hours are scheduled to the minute. You know, every day. Um, so getting a chance to sit in a dark movie theater room and just look at pretend it's a movie theater and like watch the movie and talk about the sound and and make choices. And um, like Craig said, we like to work where we sort of front load the schedule as much as possible to do as much sound design up front and get the concepts working like you did with with even with um with stranger things it's like once you get them to buy into the ideas up front then it makes the rest of the process much easier and i would say you know i came in fairly early uh to watch deadpool and that scene it's, it was basically all the same sounds you know and that was you know two or so months before we even did the final mix so, you know, the scene was already there. You could see what the scene needed to be. Um, and then the trick with mixing a scene like that is you're trying to give the audience the illusion that they're hearing everything all the time, which of course you can't. You can only hear two or three things at a time. So it's constantly about, okay, what don't we need? Okay, get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that. Okay, dip the thing there. So, okay, and then push the music there. Okay, and it's like very surgical. It's sort of this... Um, it's sort of like a, a, a high-speed relay race where you're sort of handing off from one thing to the other and back and forth and back and forth. And so, so much of mixing is about getting rid of stuff, even if it's just temporarily. Um, and it'd be, if we played you just the music in that scene, it would sound like an insane person mixed it. And same, same thing with the, with the sound effects. It would sound like, you know, this is insane. Who would ever mix something like this? But when you play it all together, then you start getting some idea of why it all gels the way it does. Fantastic. So, Craig, for you, you've had a great relationship with Darren Aronofsky, which started with Rec Room for a Dream. Yeah. And ever since you've had worked on all of his films. For um, amazing, I think I first met you when you worked on Black Swan, which uh, a lot of attention to texture and stuff that's subliminal that doesn't necessarily match image. Like, you hear things that aren't necessarily happening, that just characters are maybe taking, you're right. taking the perspective of the character, and that's definitely the case with this clip from Mother. Maybe you can just set up why you like working with Darren, what it is about his approach to sound and what, how you guys work uh, together. I mean, Darren, I mean, you know, 
when you ever you know, work for somebody like Darren, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's frustrating, loving, caring, fighting, all of it. And now, I mean, I've known Darren for now 20 odd years or whatever. So it, it's your family. And, and, uh, but that doesn't mean you have to, you can't not bring your A game and, and you need to be on it and always be pushing. Um, Darren just really, really loves every facet of filmmaking but he really loves music and sound and and he's one of those directors that's with you every step of the way um and uh i spent about four months in new york this year and and we just worked every every well initially every couple of days darren would come in and we'd review things and work on things um and then in the final mix he was there every single day and would sit at the console with us and skip live say who i mixed it with he was on one side and darren and myself and um, you know, we mix in a virtual sort of world now, so we're not really committed to anything. So we're able to sort of like react at any point. And the great thing Darren loves is that mixing and sound design and sound effects and there's no walls, right? Like in, in Hollywood, there used to be this really traditional and it sort of is to a degree nowadays is a traditional Will's a sound mixer, sound re-recording mixer, and I'm a sound effects guy. So I prepare all the sounds, but He's the guy that actually mixes it. Well, Darren's like, what? That's ridiculous. Why can't, why can't you do both? And why can't we just, it's, it's not just mixing the sound. It's, you know, it's, um, I want that sound now to be pitched and then I want you to reverse it and I want you to stretch that on. Well, that's in the old traditional way of mixing that would actually take forever and an army of people to sort of do that. And now it's like instantaneous. So again, our skill sets allow filmmakers like Darren um, and, and like Matt Reeves for, for Will or JJ for, for Will to be like sort of instant gratification on some levels. Because they, they understand the technology. They, they yeah. know that there's not, that it's an artificial barrier because right. they grew up around it too. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so Darren, I mean, so you have that side of it, but then you also have the intensely creative side of like what his films are about. And a lot of his films are very psychological and very much, um, about just a journey with a main character and it's subjective, almost all sub subjective. Black Swan was like 90% subjectivity. Um, this movie for sure is shot. I don't know if you've seen mother, but if you guys have, it's shot basically three different angles and it's all from Jennifer's sort of perspective. Um, and then late in the game, we decided not to use any music. So it becomes like, okay, Hennigan, you now have to step it up even more. So, um, which is great for guys like us, but the journey of getting to where we didn't use any music was we, you know, Johan wrote an amazing score. Um, it just didn't really work for the film. It didn't work for Johan or Darren. It was actually Johan that suggested maybe we don't use any music, you know, to his, you know, to his sort of like, how do we figure this out? And, um, but it allowed sound and sound design to sort of like have to be amped up and have to sort of carry, carry the emotionality of, a, of it. And that's a lot of times that's what music does. And, and so how do you do sound effects that are based in reality, um, which is what this movie is, but lean towards something that gives you some sort of emotional impact, you know? So. That's awesome. Um, and I think this, there's no production in this, is this right? Is it just... I'd actually, this is the mix. This is the mix, okay, great. Um, which actually, yeah, but it's her breathing, and I mean, it, it's a stereo version, so it's it's not, you know. There's more, in the surround, there's more movement. Yeah, right, okay. yeah, but this is, this is, I think this is a scene, this is a stairwell scene? Yeah, in the basement. Yeah. Okay. So th this is a scene where the use of um, natural sounds, the use of, you know, insects, and, and, and how to use those in a dramatic sort of sense, and, and, uh, and so, yeah. 
Hey. <laughs> he left you all alone. Nice. I love that. The tension that's built, the sound follows and subliminally, you're, as an as audience member, you're being asked to yes. go there with yeah. the character. That's kind of, I think, speaking of how we arrived at no music, that was one of the things. Um, when we put music into the movie, it actually started telling you how to feel and telling you what was coming around the corner. Um, and they did a few screenings and, and people would really, they did a screening with just sort of the sound, sound design mix, and then I did a screening with the music, and a lot of the comments were, we really like the sound design mix because it, it allows you to lean into the movie and, and sort of be with Jennifer. Um, and also nowadays, there's just so much music in films. And, and, uh, and so when people were watching this, they're like, oh, it's really refreshing in some ways to that, that um, you're, you're experiencing it on a different level. And then we just went for it after that. I mean, when you see this, if you see it in 7-1 or in Dolby Atmos, it, we panned everything around the room and we really made a, a, an immersive soundscape. The stereo doesn't quite do justice of all the little details that she's actually hearing as she goes up the steps and stuff. But, you know, the basement, it, there's all these sort of like um, symbolism. Like, so there's a lot of symbolic stuff in the sound. You know, when that door opens, it's actually the sound of a uterus, like a baby womb and stuff. You know, there's all those sort of things going on with the, with it. Um, so there's those dual and triple layers of like, how do you do that storyline, but also make it creepy? And how do you make it with insects? The insect thing is a very classic sound design trick, you know, to sort of do that. A lot of horror movies still to do that thing. Exorcist does it really, really great. In and it the, still works because like everyone was jumping yeah. in the dark here. And I don't think you can get away from it. It's just, yeah. yeah. It gets you every time. Yeah. 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 So. And I, it seemed like that, I think really shows about how film, is is a 50% audio, 50% visual medium. Because yeah, right. you take the sound away on a scene like that and it doesn't really mean as much. and It hardly means anything. Right. It's not effective emotionally in any way if you take the sound out, right? right? Yeah. So it's like, you know, maybe, some people say it's, it's, you know, kind of a stretch to say it's 50%, but how many movies would you really enjoy if you turned the sound off? Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're gonna have an issue with an argument like that in this audience. So. <laughs> uh, but talking about uh, just what you're saying, like for Cloverfield, for you, you've had a fantastic relationship with Matt Reeves, who then went on did the last two Planet of the Apes films. But for something like Cloverfield, which is an incredible, have you guys seen Cloverfield? Do you guys remember Cloverfield? Absolutely fantastic film. Um, but I think this, what you have here, is a breakdown where it goes between production and the final mix. And I think, what can you just say in terms of, once again, sound helping tell story when yeah. you have your main creature in the film you never really see, you just hear throughout the whole film? Well, the whole concept with this film uh, was JJ and Matt wanted to make a, their, basically an American Godzilla movie, but they didn't really have the money to do it the way they wanted to do it. So they realized that they were going to have to shoot it where you didn't see the monster for hardly any of the time. So a lot of the shots are, you know, you sort of, pan up and then you pan away. So you only really see the monster for 20 frames because that's all they could afford to shoot. Or they could all, you know, for the visual effects. So the whole idea was like, okay, so we're just gonna hear it the whole time. We're just gonna hear everything off screen and we're, gonna, we're not gonna show everything. And it was done in a handheld style, so it's sort of you get away with that kind of thing. Um, but it was a very clever thing, for, you know, in, in terms of the concept of like, sound is a lot cheaper than visual effects. So we'll tell the story primarily with sound and then, We'll show the monster as little as we can get away with. 
And the other thing that's effective about that is that it lets you use your imagination. You know, you, you don't really see the monster hardly for most of the movie. So you're just imagining what this thing's like, um, which is always more interesting. Uh, and the other fun thing about this movie, just like Mother, is that there, because of the concept of it being handheld and Matt wanted it to, to feel real, they made the decision early on that there would be no score whatsoever. So all of the dramatic heavy lifting had to be done by us, which was great. Um, and it gave us you know, a really broad canvas to work with. Um, so I think this is kind of a fun illustration. You'll see it'll wipe back and forth between the final mix and just the production sound from set. And um, I think it'll give you some sense of you know, what we brought to the table. Hey, did you guys see that? Did you guys just see that? I love the. F I mean, I remember watching that film, and it's like you get you start to get hints of scale, size, weight of this creature, and and finally there is a reveal. But like, there's an incredible buildup throughout the film. Right. Yeah. They 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 tease it a lot, and and almost all of that's done with either just like a you see just a little bit of a tail, or you, you see a foot or something, and but it's all done with sound. Um, so that was a, it was a really fun challenge. But um, you can even hear you know it sounds so ridiculously fake when it's the production sound because they're all wearing radio mics. So there isn't, you don't even hear the stuff falling off the shelves and stuff like that because there, it wasn't mic'd. And when, the, you know, when the, the feet are shaking the camera, that's just a cameraman shaking the camera on the floor. So it doesn't make a sound, you know? So that's why everything feels so ridiculously fake when it's just the production. So that's, that's the fun thing about what we do, right? It's like we get to add reality and emotional resonance to the film without the audience realizing that it's even being added or realizing that we're manipulating them. You know, that, that's the, to me, that's the coolest thing about this job is we can, we can be a, a huge part of the film experience and, and it's this invisible art that no one will ever understand. So uh, that was 2008, this is 2017 now, eight years later, Matt has done a few more films and I feel like your guys' relationship has also evolved. How, what does that mean to you, knowing the shorthand and having his trust when it comes to, you know, a film like War of Planet of the Apes? There's an incredible interview with Matt when he talks about the production timeline and how much time is spent and just mocap and all the stuff on the visual side. But then also for you guys for the sound side, like, can you describe what does it mean when the director has you in their pocket in a way of... Sure, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I think Matt and Darren are very similar in a lot of ways. They, they love using subjective sound um, and they, they're there every minute of the mix. You know, like they, they want to go through every shot 
you know, and put his own stamp on it. Um, but he also, he likes us to start doing sound work as soon as he starts his director's cut. So as soon as he's back from set, and often even before uh, he's back from set, like when we did the movie Let Me In, he actually asked to send, he wanted some sounds so he could write to it. Like he was actually playing, we were sending him like some winds and some like sort of cold, kind of you know snowfall and that kind of thing and he would play these long loops while he was writing the script um he really uses sound as a very integral storytelling element and so for him he needs to have a sound team helping as soon as he starts putting the film together and what that often means for us is we're iterating where he'll send over you know i need he'll come and say okay i, I want to do this and i want to do this and send the scene over and I'll throw something together and send him a little mix down and then he'll go, okay, cool. Um, you know, that helped me figure out that this part of the scene isn't working. So now here's a new idea, you know, and, and that's a big part of his process, I think, is that he needs to um, react to the sound. He needs sort of, sort of, not fully fleshed out sound, but he needs to at least hear some of the world that's happening, especially in a movie like Planet of the Apes where so much of what you're seeing in the final product is completely created. Um, you have some kind of stand-in for it at the beginning because you have these guys in pajamas with dots all over and you just have to imagine, okay, those 20 guys in pajamas are going to be 300 apes. Uh, and so it helps him to hear it even if he can't see it yet. Um, and I think it also helps him um, present the idea of what the scene is going to feel like to the studio and the other people who who are going to potentially, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it helps to, if you have a fully fleshed out or, you know, a substantially fleshed out soundtrack, even when the film is not visually fleshed out, it helps, I think, assuage fears and it helps the movie feel like it's, a, it's okay, it's gonna, someday it's gonna be really cool because listen to how cool it sounds. Um, <laughs> And I think that that does help, even subconsciously, it helps the studio people and the producers who aren't, you know, necessarily creative types. It helps them understand that this is going to be good someday. It's going to be cool. So I brought with me something that um, it's it's a little long. It's longer than the clips we've played, but it's basically a one-minute scene from. Uh, has anybody seen War for the Planet of the Apes? So there's a there's an arrow attack in the movie. Maybe let's just play it and you can talk or give it some. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically, I brought you a little piece that's going to play some layers. So you'll hear some of the different layers that go into the film. Fall back! Fall back! So what you're hearing here is the sound that was recorded on set, but all these off-screen screams and stuff, this was all recorded after the fact. So, of course, you can hear that the only thing they're really trying to record on set is the dialogue. You don't hear his gear. You don't hear anything. Colonel, I don't think I'm going to make it, sir. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, sir. Listen to me. You kill as many as you can. 
When you hear no, no, no. The one character there in the middle, the one monkey, his his voice was actually recorded on set, but all the other apes were added in post. You'll hear that layer later. Uh, Dan O'Connell did the foley on this. So of course the the ape foley is uh, is kind of the most the most interesting aspect of the foley because he had to come up with the language of how do you differentiate the sounds of the ape feet and hands from the humans, and what he ended up using was some combination of basically leather gloves and mitts. But if you hear, there's a thickness to these sounds. This took forever. <laughs> It's all kinds of things. So, the, the challenge for this section was trying to really feel the textures of all the different things that it was hit, that the arrows are hitting. Because when we did the first pass, everything kind of sounded the same. It just sounded like arrow hits, you know. And so, to try to vary it up and have contrast between the sounds, and also the trying to make it feel like the ones that are hitting right next to him feel substantially closer than the ones that are hitting around him. Because Matt really wanted to make it feel like you're with him, like he's pinned down, he can't leave. Uh, and a big part of that actually was this layer. So there's a lot of arrows in here, but there's also things like ricochets, like from actual bullet buys and things like that. Is this? This is the layer that made it feel like think it's a near miss. You know, every time there's an error going by, it's, it's, it's just about to hit him. And that, this, we found that this was the thing that you can hear it's very loud. This was actually almost more important than the arrow hits themselves because it was the thing that gave it proximity. You know, like it was really, uh, it was whizzing right by his head. This is another thing that we found was really useful in making it feel just sort of like the, you know, like war is hell kind of thing, was adding this grit layer. Uh, it's one of those things we didn't add till the very end and we realized it was, it was feeling fake because obviously we're adding everything in. So it needed to have some grounding and, and just sort of be a little messier. Um, so adding that, that debris layer really helped in terms of making it feel real. What can you say also about just the rhythm of those, the sounds? Right, well everything, all the guns, all the off-screen guns, I mean, we're not seeing, there's only one gun that you see on, on screen shot, but all the guns were placed very specifically to be around uh, soldiers' screams and lines, and, and so that it had like a certain cadence to the whole scene. It's kind of fun.
It's actually the hardest layer to put together, believe it or not, because it's made up of so many things. takes a lot of you know fake stuff to make it sound real <laughs> which is the funny thing it's it's uh it's a great example of when you understand the ingredients when you under also understand how the end result works so well uh like you're saying when stuff comes in and out i think for a film like this this is a great example of once again you have not non or cg char main characters tons of off-screen stuff but sound fills in those holes yeah just like cloverfield was kind of illustrating yeah i mean you know matt matt's whole thing he he actually felt that he had he didn't feel that he had nailed this scene um, visually. So th there was a lot of pressure on us to, f to fill in what he felt like he hadn't had a chance to get on set, which is basically he wanted that feeling of like, he wanted the soldier to feel pinned down like he couldn't leave. And so that's why we spent so much attention and time on getting it to sound like there's just this hailstorm of, of arrows that you really don't see that much, but you, but you feel it, right? Um, so that was, you know, that was a fun challenge. It was a lot of damn work, but it was a fun challenge. Fantastic. Um, for you, Craig, once again, going back with your work with Darren for Black Swan, this is a great breakdown, once again, of listening to production or your design and the final mix. But once again, like, I think this emphasizes perspective of character. Yeah. Environment. Um, for sure. Um, speaking of what, what sort of Will just said about Matt, wanting um, sound to storytell and to do all sort of things. Uh, Black Swan was one of the first things Darren told me was, I didn't get it visually. This is a $13 million film, so I couldn't go shoot this, this, and this. So your job as a sound designer is to fill in those blanks and fill in those holes. And I, I think directors that we tend to work with are cognizant of that and, and are able to sort of really utilize that and the talent that someone like Will brings to the table. And, and you know, Matt's not stupid. He knows what Will's capable of, so he's gonna use Will for as much as he can sort of do. And I feel Darren sort of tries to do the same thing with, with all his departments as well. Um, so this one, this scene, the challenge in this scene um, it's real four, and I apologize. This is the kind of work picture that we work against, so it's not the final graded color time sort of deal. And um, but it gives you a sense of kind of the kind of shitty picture that we work on and stuff, and and how much you're not seeing the, the image that you should probably be seeing, and uh, and how difficult it can be to sort of put sound to something like this. But the 
this is a this is a club scene and there's a great track the chemical brothers did this great track um but we didn't want it to turn into a music video and they're on a dance floor and stuff so um i kind of came up with this thing of like let me work with the dialogue let me work with some of these um more esoteric lines of uh line readings that we had the actors do and and try to get them in the cut um and then i do these really fast stutter edit cuts of crowd um and uh darren seemed to really like it but this will demonstrate basically the full mix and then you'll sort of hear um sort of what we added from a sound design perspective into the into the song because we didn't want to dominate the song we actually wanted to be inside the fabric of the chemical brothers track so that was sort of the goal hey. great this room needs some needs some subwoofer this room needs some yeah. you guys need some subwoofers in here or something but oh, that's a good yeah. uh, you know that's a good mix of of like sound design working within sort of a musical context and rhythmical context again and and getting sounds to push through but not be part like not be over the over the top so i want to allow for you guys to uh answer or ask a few questions um so the question was about working with terrence malick well you know he's um he's another filmmaker that uh, so much of his work, from a sound point of view, has perspective, right? So I think he, he's always looking for whose head are we hearing this scene through, right? Um, and, and also his films are so expressive in many ways, and that's another thing that I think Craiger and, and I are always looking for, how can the sound be expressive um, emotionally? Uh, and, you know, Terry, his whole thing is like, he, he never wants to feel cuts. He always does straight cuts. He doesn't do dissolve, cross dissolves visually, but he'll do, uh, he, he wants the sound for the next scene to start 30 seconds, to start fading in for 30 seconds before the cut. So you start feeling this thing, you know, maybe it's a trickling waterfall. You start feeling the sound and then 30 seconds later, oh, there it is, that's the waterfall. And so it has, it, it gives it this kind of, um, it's a tone poem, you know, things sort of, one idea flows into the next and, and you don't think so much about, 
what you're hearing because it's not jarring. Everything has a lot of flow to it. Um, and I really appreciate that about, about his, his films. I think they're really cool. Questions? Yeah. Um, the brothers wanted to go full tilt. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to feel it in 5.1, so they actually mix it in a, it's, it's kind of like a small to medium size mix stage. Um, and then it's up to the, it's up to Adam and Joe, our mixers, after the fact to make sure that it translates. Um, and so they'll do near fields and then they'll do, you know, your iPad mix. Um, most, uh, most directors, um, are very cognizant that their movies are gonna be watched on phones nowadays. Um, Darren actually makes me do a specific iPad mix. Um, and uh, him being a New Yorker, that's all he sees are people on the subway watching films. And uh, um, so they know that. So a lot of the guys are like, yeah, you can have your Dolby Atmos and you can go you know, get your rocks off on all that kind of stuff and make it sound amazing, but you better make sure that my stereo iPad or, you know, or my phone mix has has the guts to do it so you know um we're cognizant of it for sure um but it's definitely i think the technology nowadays has allowed us to sort of like make such high standards of, of sounds that that um you don't lose as much as 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 you would you obviously lose the low end and all those sort of things but um it's not at the forefront like the way it used to be tv mixes before used to be you would mix on oratones like really small near field type speakers and you would very rarely put it up to the big speakers um and it was kind of very antiseptic and not very creative at all i, I don't even know how i would get a demogorgon to feel the way it would if I was sort of forced to sort of just work on NS10s or, or, or tones or something small, yeah. I think that's a good, a good point in terms of deliverables today. You have the top, the Atmos, the IMAX, down to streaming formats and... Yeah, it's it a lot of times yeah. it's, it's in deliverable lands, sometimes you have longer to do the deliverables than you do the final mix, especially on the sort of medium to lower budget films because everybody wants content everybody wants it to be you know and and with with Dolby Atmos the what providers like Netflix are now wanting is a single deliverable which would be the Atmos mix which then then can render down to 7151 stereo whatever but we usually do at least on feature films we you know we mix in a big room and then we'll usually do a near field mix on smaller speakers and at a lower level, and then you know you're making sure you can you still hear the dialogue? Is, is the low end too big? Is it blowing up this little speaker? Um, you know, do I need to give it a little boost in the low mids to make up for some of the lows I'm missing on the low low end? Um, you know, am I compressing the dynamic range just a little bit overall? You know, that kind of stuff so that you're gonna it still it still feels like the mix, but you have more of a chance of it translating to to lower quality playback systems. And then same as Darren, whenever I do anything for JJ, he always wants to do a laptop mix. And so I always take whatever we've done and I take the stems and I literally put open Pro Tools on my MacBook Air and I do the mix on the MacBook Air speakers and I make sure it sounds great on those because he's gonna go home and listen to it on his iPad, which is gonna sound even worse. So that's, you know, that's the only way I can make sure that I'm not going to get an email at two in the morning saying, I can't hear the whatever, you know? So I just do it right on the laptop. Fantastic. Another question? Yeah. I mean, I think that certainly the technology is what's enabled guys like us to, to start mixing as early as we do now. I mean, I start mixing as soon as I lay in a sound. 
you know, I'm often doing some EQ or putting some reverb on it or panning it as soon as I make a sound and put it in the track. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, Pro Tools specifically, but, you know, take your pick any of the other platforms. I mean, they're letting us do everything at once, which is great. And, and I'm also finding more and more that I'm doing one-man mixes more often. You know, it used to be there was a dialogue mixer, a music mixer, and a sound effects mixer. And then it became that there was a dialogue and music mixer together and a sound effects mixer. And then a lot of times on stuff that we're doing, I'm doing it all myself, especially in the temp mixes. And to be honest, it's a lot of work. You know, if you get up to take a pee, no one, you know, the mix stops. But it also gives me a lot of control. So if I want to do the thing where like, okay, I want to push the music and, and, and pull the sound effects, I can just do it. You know, and I don't have to like coordinate it with another guy. Um, and a lot of that's about feel. And it's like, I'm always trying to mix the whole movie and not just the sound effects track. You know, so I'm trying to make it, like the Deadpool is, clip is a good example of that. Th that took a lot, probably more time than it might have if I just had mixed it myself or if my partner on that film, Paul Massey, had mixed it all himself because there was a lot of coordination of like, okay, you push, I pull. You know, and there was a lot of that stuff that has to happen in real time, actually, when you're sitting next to another guy mixing because you're kind of like reacting to it. And, um, you know, there can be a lot of great things about working with another mixer, um, you know, collaboration of ideas and just perspective and especially when you're working on a movie like Planet of the Apes where I've got so many tracks and so much stuff going on and my head is just full of that and then my mixing partner Andy Nelson can say you know just shape wise I think we're getting a little big here because that's taking away from this thing later and I go oh right of course and I you forget because your head is in it you know um, so th that can be a really good thing uh, so there's nothing wrong with that I, I actually would go even, even further and I'd actually say that, um, especially for like your generations and, and younger, um, there's a real art to mixing. And, and I feel just because you can run Pro Tools and you can open up a session, you can cut a few sound effects does not make you a mixer. And, uh, and Will and I have had the benefit of coming up in an age like, you know, I, I, I fucking did two track and, and, and 24 track studio stuff. I was, you know, the assistant biasing the machines and stuff. So I learned under some guys that mixed and that's all I did. So I do feel that um, we were lucky in, in that. And I know Will and I both try really hard to take off the sound effects hat and sound supervisor hat and put on the sound mixer hat when we're working um, because it is a big picture. It is, you know, what we're doing. And yeah, you're in the weeds a lot of times and you're dealing with thousands of tracks and stuff, but ultimately it's like, what, what does it say as a piece? And uh, it's important. And I try to, to drill into our younger guys that we're sort of bringing up and stuff is that go and learn how to mix, not just, like I said, just because you can doesn't mean you're actually our, our mixer. And a lot of tools out there that make you think you are and you know what you're doing. And we've both witnessed it. We've both watched guys that, you know, think they're mixers and, and they're not. And, and, you know, and there's much better mixers out in the world than, than Will and I are uh, as well, you know. So um, there's that balancing act, you know. Um, I think what it affords us to do is is sort of do an over, overview, full picture thing and, and uh, um, it's not easy and, and we give up a lot of our nights and weekends and time because all those extra things that have to happen so that you can just mix, um, you have to find time to do those, those things. And, and that's a real important thing I think to be cognizant of is when you, when you guys are creating tracks and stuff. You know? Yeah, and I think for, for you guys, 
I don't know what sort of phase you guys all are in, in your in your process, but um, you know, the more you can get to know the technical side of things, so that it disappears, the better. You know, if you if you can if you can get the the tools so that they're just subconscious, you don't have to think about it. Then you can start thinking about what are you trying to do with the tools, right? You shouldn't be spending all your time trying to just figure out ultimate. Exactly or right. So it's like figure out what works for you. Figure out your shortcuts. Figure out you know the things that that work for how you want to get to the final process enough that you can try to not think about them and think about the movie yeah. or the song or what, whatever you're doing. Whatever the actual thing that you're trying to make is, think about that. And when you're, when you're mixing, especially if you're mixing in front of a console, watch the movie. The screen. Don't the, watch, your, don't watch that screen. Watch that screen. <laughs> you, know, you, you see, even in, you know, in L.A. and Hollywood, you see a lot of guys who sit behind a Pro Tools screen while they're mixing and they're watching this screen. And they're, or they're watching you know, the, little, the little screen with the picture on it. And you're like, dude, the movie's up there. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the great thing about, about mixing consoles in general, whether it's an Icon or an S6 or it's a big DFC or whatever, is that it's a way that you can, you can just put your finger on, on a couple faders and you can watch the movie and you can react to the movie emotionally and you don't have to think about where I'm clicking on a screen. You know, that, that's still... I hope mixing consoles never go away for that reason because it's still very important to abstract that experience where you don't have to think about the nuts and bolts of where I'm clicking my mouse. I want to just give a big round of applause for these two. Thank you guys. Thank you for coming, for coming out. Thank you guys. Thank you.